were spawned out of the events of the Reformation. At its very heart lay the fundamental question, the most important question that anyone can ever ask and answer, and that is how can we be made right with God? Uh, so are we made right with God by this? This is a, um, uh, a stone engraving. If you go to Europe, lots of the Romanesque and Gothic cathedrals and churches there all over Europe, uh, over the front door they have a big stone engraving. In an illiterate society, it was a tremendously powerful way by which the church could communicate its core message to those people who were coming in. And uh, they're quite beautiful, many of them. They're quite striking. This is, um, this is one of them. And uh, you can see that there's an angel uh, right there, uh, looking very impartial and holding an old-fashioned set of scales. Uh, in the scales, you've got people being weighed. There's a little person praying uh, desperately that having been, their life having been weighed in the balance, that they might now be found to be acceptable to God. And uh, over here, of course, is um, a particularly ghoulish-looking demon. And he's trying to grab the scales. There's another little one down there trying to influence the scales because their hope is that somebody's life having been weighed in the balance by God, that we found that they have not reached the pass mark, and therefore they will join all those people over here. You see the chains being ushered off by, um, by another demon being ushered off to hell. Um, it's a part of a broader scene, and the people on, uh, on that side uh, are being taken off with much fanfare to heaven. So you arrive at church, and the message that the church is giving to you at that point is, you want to be right with God, you want to be sure about heaven, well, you need to work as hard as you possibly can on your religious good works, because one day God is going to have a set of scales and they'll be weighed in the balance and it will be decided as to whether you've made 50% or not. And if you don't, that's going to be the result. So is that how we're made right with God? Do you say 50% just as an arbitrary thing? Or I do. do. Think, yeah. I do. The, what the church actually said was, do your best. Yeah. And of course, if you've got a, um, a, a, a fairly easygoing conscience, that's not a lot. <laughs> so confident people without a much of a sense of sin, um, that's okay, I've done my best. Uh, but for those with a, an acute awareness of their own sinfulness, of course, it's not much help. But no, the church's answer was, do your best. Which, of course, the whole problem with that is, is how do I know if my best is best, um, mm. whether or not it's good enough? And, mm. and that keeps a, a population, therefore, aware that they need to stick with the church and they need to be right with the church because this is going to be their best bet. So are we made right with God by this? Or, this is a Reformation uh, uh, sculpture in a park in Worms, uh, or by Christ alone through faith alone? Now, that's the fundamental question of the Reformation. It's the fundamental question that Martin Luther wrestled with as he himself was coming to salvation. So the first question I want to ask is, why would you like to have a beer with Martin Luther? Uh, if you're a teetotaler, don't worry. He'd be sure to have a coffee with you. Uh, but um, Luther and his beer drinking is, um, is quite famous. Uh, so I thought you probably should put it as why you want to have a beer with Luther. First thing to say about Luther is that he had a strong confidence in God. Uh, he came back to, after the Reformation had, had erupted, uh, Luther came back to the source of it, to Wittenberg, having lived for 11 months in 
uh, in disguise, in hiding for, for his life. We'll come to that. But he comes back to Wittenberg and the place is an absolute uproar. There are priests being dragged through the streets by their hair. There are, there are um, uh, violence being done against, against nuns. There's uh, uh, statues being smashed. The, the ruling authorities are thinking of closing the whole thing down. It's complete chaos. And Luther comes back and he responds to the chaos by doing one simple thing. Every day he preached a sermon. And within a couple of weeks, he has brought control and order to the Reformation. In one of his sermons, this is what he said, I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word, otherwise I did nothing. And when while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amstorff, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word, that is the word of God, that is the Bible, did everything. There's this extraordinary confidence in God that Luther has and a confidence in God's revelation of himself in Scripture. And the power of that Scripture, when it is read and taught and believed and followed, the power of that Scripture for transformation. Uh, so as far as Luther was concerned, that was the basis of the Reformation. And he refused, for example, in all of the debates that he was engaged with, he refused to ever debate on any other authority apart from the Bible. Now, that's very unusual for the church of the day. They wanted to appeal to theologians. They wanted to appeal to tradition. They wanted to appeal to the sayings of the Pope. Luther said, I will not talk to you unless the only authority that we use is the Bible. And uh, he knew that the Bible was God's revelation and therefore it needed to be stuck to. He had an honest struggle with temptation as well. It's one of the reasons I love Martin Luther. You get, get this real sense of, of earthy reality about Martin Luther. He said, I was often tested by the devil when I was imprisoned in my Patmos. That was 11 months in, in disguise, in hiding, high up in the fortress in the kingdom of the birds. I resisted him in faith and confronted him with this verse, God who created man is mine and all things are under his feet. If you have any power over him, try it. But the devil looks for me when I'm at home in bed and I resist the devil and often it's with a fart that I chase him away. So, now that's just a straight quote. That's not me. I apologise for the uncouthness of the language. Um, my kids tell me that's quite okay these days, but I grew up in a world where you didn't use language like that. But Luther did. And uh, I have to say that's one of his milder statements. Um, I remember I was writing an article, a book thing, and I found this statement where Luther was describing what it was like to die. And uh, I read it to the previous principal of SNBC. I said, what do you think about starting with that? And he said, you can't use that in a book still. I said, why not? I said, Luther said, it doesn't matter whether he said it. You can't use it in a book. I thought, oh, I'll go and talk to Pauline. So I said to Pauline, what do you think about this? I think it's really good. She said, you can't use that still. You can't use that. I said, but Luther says, it doesn't matter. You still can't say it. So there's a lot of Luther that, that can be quite, quite um, confrontational for us. He, was, he would have been a very awkward member of this congregation. <laughs> So, uh, but, but he would often speak about his own struggle with temptation. He said, the devil will often come to me and tempt me with silly sins. Uh, he, would, he would number off all the things that he'd do. And uh, sometimes he would say, yes, old fellow, I know all about them. Uh, and there's some that you haven't put on the list. And one of them was often a broken wind. Um, <laughs> have you written that down on your list as well? His idea was to make fun of it, to mock the devil in his temptation. But he said, I remind myself of the forgiveness of sin and of Christ because the devil troubles me with trivialities. It's interesting, he said, I don't notice this when I'm depressed. That is, I don't notice that they're just trivialities. 
But he says, when I feel better, I can see it clearly enough. But when I'm depressed, he says, I find it very hard to realise that they're trivialities. They become so real to me. So there's a, there's a, there's a lived out earthiness to Martin Luther's wrestle with temptation and with sin and with the devil. He struggled also with depression. He said once, beware of melancholy. It's forbidden by God because it's so destructive to the body. Our Lord has commanded us to be cheerful. In this world, sadness generally springs from money on a study. My temptation is this, that I think I don't have a gracious God. Uh, and for Luther, that's what haunted him, that God would not forgive him, uh, that God was not gracious. And always that was where the devil would come to him and would, and would, and would attack him, that he wouldn't have, uh, that God would not be gracious. He lived at times in, in terror of what he had done because he's a man who has led a whole community of people out of the Roman Catholic Church, in which it was said there is only salvation to be found, out of the Roman Catholic Church, who has defied the Holy Roman Emperor of Europe, who has defied the Pope, and at times he was haunted by the fact, what if I'm wrong? Uh, what if I have got it wrong? And so there's enormous pressure on the man, and, and it certainly would have contributed to what appears to have been a very genuine uh, uh, evidence of, of significant depressive episodes. I've never been able to nail it down. I read it somewhere, but I've never been able to nail it down in Luther himself. But I've read the story that on one occasion he was so depressed he refused to come out of his study. And eventually his wife Katie had to get a screwdriver and take the, or, or a, a tool and take the doors off the study in order to physically get him to get him back out again. Um, this is not a man who rides triumphant through everything. A man who wrestles with temptation, wrestles with his own sin, and wrestles with depression. Um, yet some should have thought, nevertheless, overwhelm me. I have the advantage that our Lord gives me of taking hold of his word once again. But if you are sad, seek whatever relief you can, except that's such that are manifest sins, no matter whether they are eating, drinking, dancing, or anything else. So he says, often when I'm, when I'm, when I'm depressed, he says, I just need to be with people. And he said, if I can't find anyone, he, he said once, he said, I go out and I sit with the pigs. And uh, he says, better than nothing. Uh, he just needs to be exposed outside of himself. He also knew God in the cauldron of suffering. He spoke often about what would make you uh, a good theologian. By that he meant what would make you a good Christian leader. That was his terminology for it. And this is something that um, he wrote to his friend Philip Melanchthon, who was a co-reformer with him. And Melanchthon was trying to work out who to appoint to um, positions within the church, pastoral positions. And Luther said, you should inquire whether they have experienced spiritual distress and the divine birth, death and hell. If you should hear that all their experiences are pleasant, quiet and devout and spiritual, then don't approve of them. Even if they should say they were caught up to the third heaven, do not even listen if they speak of the glorified Jesus unless you have first heard of the crucified Jesus. Uh, the Christian life is to be lived out in the reality of a world of suffering. There's no prosperity gospel in Martin Luther. Uh, one becomes a theologian by living, indeed by dying and being damned, not by understanding, reading and speculating. Uh, your Christian faith is to be a lived out faith, it's to be a real faith. He also combined the holiness of God with an earthy appreciation of this life. That's, again, one of the things that I love about Luther is, is on one of the same, at one and the same time, he's a man who has got such a 
profound grasp of the gospel, a profound commitment to the scriptures. He's, he, he learned Greek, he learned Hebrew, he's a great scholar, and yet at the same time there's this very earthy engagement with, with the world and with the, the world around him. That's what made him so uh, controversial in many ways, as we'll see. Uh, he wrote to his wife, Katie, uh, this is only a couple of days before he died. He's away uh, in another town on uh, Reformation business. He's writing back to his wife, Katie. And he says, we are living excellently. The local wine is good and the beer is very good. The pitch in the local beer doesn't cause me any breathing problems. The devil has spoiled beer in the whole world for us with pitch. And for you, Katie, the wine with sulfur. But here the wine is good. That's a really interesting comment. Um, leave aside whether you're teetotal or not, don't, don't, that's irrelevant. What he's saying here, though, is that our enjoyment, Katie and me, our enjoyment of beer and wine is a, is a field of battle where the devil is trying to ruin our pleasure in it. Isn't that interesting? Through pitch and sulphur, he's trying to ruin our pleasure. It's what we talked about with creation and engaging with the good gifts of God and Luther sees those good that engagement with the good gifts of God as being the very bat, one of the battlefields in which the devil is waging war against you to rob you of those simple pleasures. Whether it's the taste of a cup of tea, or whether it's the smell of coffee, or in Luther's case, whether it's a beer. He used to have a um, a beer mug that had three rings on it, and he, he named the rings the the Lord's Prayer. Uh, the Ten Commandments and the Apostles' Creed. And uh, he used to, to, to boast of the fact that none of his friends could drink past the Ten Commandments, but he could drain it right down to the Apostles' Creed. Uh, there's, there's, this, there's this engagement with him. Uh, it's never any evidence of him being drunk, but there's an earthy engagement of Luther with the world in which he lived, which he recognised as being a part of the glory of God. It's why his doctrine of the priesthood of all believers is so important. Because he takes being Christian out of that entirely spiritual world, which is what the church had done. The church had said there are two types of people. You're either a priest, nun, a monk, part of the spiritual class, or you're just the rest. And if you're in the former class, the spiritual class, there are all sorts of special privileges. You are much closer to God. You are much more holy. Even if you commit a crime, you'll be treated much more leniently than everybody else. And Luther completely smashed that by saying, in fact, everyone who's a Christian has a vocation. Everyone's in the spiritual class. Everyone is a part, is a priest. There's a priesthood of all believers. And in the process, he therefore said, when you are going about your business as an electrical engineer or as a nurse or as a whatever it is you might be, that is your vocation and that is how you are giving glory to God. So he invests spiritual meaning into what we would probably describe as very earthy vocational activities. And in the process, he turned the church's views upside down but he also laid the foundation for the way that we can understand him today. So, so he had this holiness of God, deep and profound, and an earthy appreciation of this life. Um, he got married. Uh, it's interesting. I, I did this talk many, many, many years ago to a group of youth group leaders. Uh, and uh, afterwards, two of them came up to me and they said, that was terrible. And I said, oh. Okay, um, sorry. I said, no, it was terrible. Hearing that Martin Luther drank beer. 
And I said, oh, but he did. He said, yes, but he shouldn't have told us. <laughs> and I said, well, but, 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 but he did. I didn't know what else to say. And I said, yes, but we can't go back to our youth groups and talk about Martin Luther now if he drank beer. And I said, but do you know what was really controversial about Martin Luther in his day? I said, it was the fact he got married. And the two of them looked at me and I said, oh, that's not a problem. No, you shouldn't have mentioned about the beer. <laughs> but the real outrage was that Luther got married. Now, in order to understand the outrage, we need to understand that for the previous 1,000 years, the church had been teaching and practicing a view which said that the monastic life, where you die to family, to friends, to career, to wealth, to, to pleasure, that the monastic life is the best Christian life. If you want to be holy, if you're serious about holiness, then you need to become a monk or a nun. That was the way the church had lived and had taught for over a thousand years. So where was holiness to be found? It was not to be found in engagement in marriage, not to be found in, in, in children, not to be found in, in work, but it was to be found in withdrawal from all of those things, dying to those things, in order to devote yourself to good works and to prayer and to contemplation. Now that's what the church had believed for over a thousand years. With the Reformation, people began to marry, but nobody expected Luther to marry. Why? Because he was the leader of the Reformation. It may well be okay for some of the lesser people to get married, but for Luther, no, that would be impossible. How could you have the leader of the Reformation express such unholiness as to engage in the physical pleasures of marriage? Completely nothing. And so Luther, Luther was 42 when he got married. Um, he didn't necessarily have plans. What, what the, the issue that he was wrestling with was a pastoral issue in many respects, that as women decided to leave uh, uh, their, their, their convents, to leave the monastic life, they were coming into a society which was totally patriarchal. And so you either lived under the roof of your father or you lived under the roof of your husband. But there was nowhere else for women to live. So they were, and, and the only other alternative was you were in a monastery. But when they came out of the monastery, if their father was dead or had rejected them, which was commonly the case, then without a husband, they had no place within society. So one of Luther's jobs was to find husbands for ex-nuns. And uh, Katie got smuggled in a barrel of fish out of a convent along with several others uh, in Torgau, and she arrives in Wittenberg, and Luther manages to find husbands for all of the other ex-nuns apart from Katie. And the major reason was that Katie was fussy. Uh, she said once that um, she'd marry Philip Amsdorf, his friend, uh, or she'd marry Luther, but she wasn't interested in any of the other um, likely candidates that Luther was bringing along for her to have a look at. She said, I'm not interested. So eventually they married. They didn't marry in love, but they fell in love in the course of their marriage. Luther said it takes a lot of getting used to marriage. He said, uh, he said, you wake up in the morning, he said, there are pigtails there on the pillow. He said, they were used to be there. Uh, and he said, he said, I used to go to bed, he said, I, and I would sleep and I'd wake up again. And he said, I wouldn't change the sheets for a year or more. He said, I, he said they, were, they were thick with sweat. Does this sound familiar? They were thick with sweat. And he said, since Katie's kicked one, to wash the things. And so Katie's constantly bringing 
all of these changes to his life, but they fall in love. And he pays her the ultimate compliment. Um, he says that Katie is my book of Galatians. It's just the most perfect thing to say from Luther's point of view. Um, you could try it, I guess, but I don't know where it's going. There's a photo of it. It's harder to see in the, up there, but um, it's just a beautiful photo of, um, of Katie Wambora, I think. Uh, so, uh, and she was feisty. She gave Luther as much as she got. The two of them are very, um, very strong, or very determined people. Um, he said, "If I can endure conflict with the devil's sin and a bad conscience, I can put up with the irritations of Katie Von Bora." <laughs> um, I reckon, as a piece of marriage advice, that is probably the best you'll ever get. Uh, if I can endure conflict with the devil's sin and a bad conscience, then all these irritations—they're nothing by comparison. And the epistle of the Galatians is my dear epistle. I put my confidence in it. It's my Katie Von Bora. I had this. She used to brew his beer. She, um, <laughs> uh, she, she brewed his garden. They, had, they, they lived in his old monastery in Wittenberg. And they always had like a dozen, two dozen people staying there. So it was this big household that she was constantly having to feed and provide for. And she's the entrepreneur. entrepreneur. She's the Proverbs 31. Uh, wife. So she's out buying more land so that they can farm more, so that they can provide for themselves. Luther, on the other hand, couldn't care less about any of that stuff. He said, oh, he said, what does it matter? He said, as soon as Katie pays one bill, another one comes in, why bother with them? So he was quite <laughs> profligate with money, and Katie was the one who was trying to keep them solvent all of the time. There's a lovely letter that I'll read to you where um, uh, Luther's, one of Luther's friends announces that he's getting married. So Luther writes him a letter and uh, indicates in the letter that he's enclosing a little little silver dish as a wedding present. Now, that was part of the problem. Luther kept giving away all their stuff. And so Katie used to hide it so that Luther couldn't find it. And so here it is. To my brother in the Lord, John Agricola, a servant of Christ of Iceland, grace and peace, I am sending that little pewter dish with the glass inset before it finds another owner. For my Katie is trying hard to get it. I am pleased with your judgment of Erasmus, but even more pleased with the progress of your school. Farewell to you and yours and pray for me. 1526 Martin Luther. Now look, this is the PS. Just as I wanted to give the letter to the carrier, and as I searched for the little dish, I see that my Katie, this stealthy woman, has hidden it. I would have searched for it, but I'm prevented from doing this. You can imagine who was preventing him from <laughs> Just wait till the dish is freed by Katie's confinement to childbed, and then I'll steal it and I'll carry it off for you. <laughs> so I'll wait till she's, she's, she's distracted, and then I'll, I'll manage to get it to you. So they've got this, this wonderful relationship going between the two of them. Uh, and if you ever... If you, I, I read his will, and... Uh, Unlike most wills, which are just trying to allocate property, of course, um, most of the will is expressing his deep concerns for what will happen to Katie once he dies. Uh, and, and she had a very difficult time after Luther died. So that's just why you'd like to have a beer with, with, with Luther. Um, just a few facts about his early life. He was born in 1482 or 1483 or 1484, not a long later, but nobody's really sure about <laughs> what year he was born. Um, even his mother was sure of the month and the day, but she wasn't sure of the year. Luther reckoned it was, it was 1484, but I suspect that was just to make himself a bit younger. He precociously clever, sent off to edu be educated. His father, Hans's great plan is that Luther will become a lawyer. 
And so it's while he's studying law at a university in Erfurt in Germany, he goes home. It would appear, no one's sure why he had to go home, but there are indications that his father had found a wife for him. And so he's going home, and obviously Luther's been thinking about the monastic life already. On his way back to Erfurt, he's caught in a thunderstorm and very famously lightning strikes quite close to him. So close, he falls to the ground in fear and he cries out, help me, St. Anne, I'll become a monk. Very medieval thing to do, very transactional. Pray to a saint. One of the things she was was the same page. She's the mother, supposedly the mother of Mary, uh, patron saint of minors. Create a bargain. You do this for me, I'll do that for you. But he's obviously been thinking about the monastic life prior to that. A couple of weeks later, he turns up at the um, Augustinian Hermit Monastery in Erfurt and he presents himself. His father is ropeable. Uh, his father just hits them if he's so angry at what Luther has done. Furious with his son. He, his father has invested a lot of money so far in Luther's university education and he's just watched the whole lot go down the drain with his decision to waste his life in the monastic life. But he joins the monastery anyway, despite his father. He said once that he became a monk against the wishes of his father, against the wishes of his mother, against the wishes of the devil, and against the wishes of God. He said, nobody thought it was a good idea except me. He said, I was like pushing my head through a wall. But God used that for good. Um, in 1507, he's ordained and he celebrates Mass, the Roman Catholic Mass for the very first time, and it's an interesting indication of the state of mind, the spiritual state of Martin Luther. Um, he's standing uh, in that church, um, uh, right where, they, where that, that, that current communion table is, or altar. I hope you can see that okay. Yeah. Um, he's, he's, he's standing in the church, and he's behind the, the, the altar. There's an older priest with him to help him walk him through it because this is his first mass and as Luther is handling and pronouncing the words that speak of this being the body and this being the blood of Christ Luther says that he was so terrified that all he wanted to do was to flee uh, and he turns to the older priest and he says Reverend Father I must go right in the middle of it now this is a huge occasion for Luther um, his father has come round finally to the idea, and in fact he's up the back with a part with a company of about twelve family and friends. He sent on quite a bit of money to pay for an after party so that they can celebrate this great event. It's a huge thing, and Luther turns and he says, "I must go." The whole idea that Luther, the sinful man, could could be handling the holy God is overwhelming for him. So acutely aware of his own sin. So he turns to the priest, he says, Reverend Father, I must go. And the priest shows a phenomenal practical wisdom. What he says to Luther is, go faster, go faster. <laughs> so stop thinking, just get it over with. And so Luther heeds the advice, goes faster, they have a lovely after party and all's right. But it, but it shows something about the, the mental state, the spiritual state of Luther. He goes on to uh, arrive in Wittenberg, which is a town in what was once East Germany, uh, which has got a new university and he's going to uh, be a Biblical Studies lecturer there. He's enrolled in PhD studies, so he's doing his doctorate. Um, that's the church that he used to go to. Uh, and uh, it's not the castle church, the big one, it's a smaller one. 
but that was the church that he used to regularly attend. And while he was there, oh, before we, we there's, there's a, another scene uh, of the whole dilemma that Luther's wrestling with. This is from Vézelay in France, from a church there, and you can see it in its um, entirety. You've got Christ sitting there, arms outstretched. Over on this side, you've got an angel trumpeting all the people as they head off into heaven. And over on this side, you have the same scene that we saw uh, in earlier. And there it is in close-up. It's a different, different scene, but the same, the same thing. An angel carrying the scales. There's the demon. See how he's just cupping the face of a little sinner over here with his hand. And as the angel of judgment trumpets, the people are being led off to the victory and to hell. And Christ sits impassively in judgment. Now that's what Luther is wrestling with and it is agony for him. Every time he came to church, I think this is the next slide, there's a close-up again of, um, of the devil. You can see him cupping the face of the little sinner down here and the people being weighed in the balance and look at agony and despair. That's the message the church is giving. You're not good enough, you're gone. So make sure you do, the, do your best and hope for the best, but remember, hell is terrible. That was the message of the church. And Luther, when he came to church, and it's very hard to see that one, but that is a photograph of out the front was a sandstone image of Christ. And that's as it looks today. It's been worn quite down. Uh, but um, uh, we managed to track it down when we were over there in a back room uh, of the church that Luther used to go to. But in case you can't make out the details, there's the figure of Christ. He's sitting on a rainbow and coming out of his mouth are two poles. One is a sword and the other is a lily. The sword is the sword of judgment and the lily is the lily of peace. So Christ again in judgment I will bring peace to you or I will bring the sword of judgment. It all depends on how you measure up in the final judgment. And so Luther said, I myself was a monk for 20 years. I tortured myself with prayers, fasting, vigils and freezing. What else did I seek by doing this but God, who was supposed to note my strict observance of the monastic order in my austere life. For I did not believe in Christ. I regarded him only as a severe and terrible judge portrayed as seated on a rainbow. And that's what he's referring to. Luther said that when he came into church, and there's a close-up, you can see the, um, the sword there and the lily of peace there and the face of Christ there. Luther, when he went to church, couldn't bear to look at that. It's what greeted him, and he used to drop his eyes and avoid looking at it as he walked into church. It was just too traumatic. Why? Because he never knew if he'd done enough. There's a growing dissatisfaction in, to Luther in the monastery. I was very pious. I said mass and prayed, hardly saw or heard a woman as long as I was in the order. I didn't think about women, money or possessions. My heart trembled and fidgeted about whether God would bestow his grace on me. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I couldn't believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I didn't love. I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners, and secretly, if not blasphemously, I was angry with God. What can, I mean, he's, he's caught in a cleft stick, isn't he? No matter what I do, it's never good enough. It's never perfect. It's, how can I ever be sure? It's that deep, profound conviction of sin. 
1510, he travels to Rome on monastic business. And while he's there, he sees it as a wonderful opportunity to be able to do religious good works which will deliver his grandparents from time in purgatory. He says, I found myself regretting that mum and dad were, were still alive. I wish they'd been dead. I could have done it for them. But they were still alive, so I had to do it for my grandparents. He celebrates Mass in as many churches as he possibly can. He's appalled by what he finds. People are queuing up, priests queuing up to, to celebrate Mass and running through it like that without any meaning. Some of them even making fun of the Latin words and not even reciting them properly, but being blasphemous as they do it in the church at the altar. He climbs Pilate's steps, and there's a photograph you can just see in a bit of the darkness there, modern-day pilgrims climbing it. Um, in near St John Lateran, if you've been to Rome, across this very busy road, there's a building which houses the steps that were supposedly brought by the mother of the Emperor Constantine in the 4th century from Jerusalem to Rome. They were supposedly the steps on which Jesus stood when he stood before Pontius Pilate. And so they're called Pilate steps. And the tradition in Luther's day, as you can see it is today, was to climb those steps on your knees. And once you got to the top, you could perform a religious work. Luther climbed them on his knees. He stopped at every step and said the Lord's Prayer and kissed the step for good measure. Then to the next one, Lord's Prayer, kiss it. Next one, Lord's Prayer, kiss it. When he got to the top, he said to his son and his lady, he said, I got to the top and I said, well, who knows whether it's so? Who knows if that worked? Was that good enough? How can anybody tell? He had a miserable time in Rome. He said, I took down um, onions and all I brought back was garlic. And for a German peasant, that was a bad exchange. Might have been good if you were Italian, but, uh, but for a German, I gave them onions, the very best, and all I got was this stupid garlic. So it was a bad exchange. It was a bad experience. Over a course of a few years, uh, Luther gradually began to understand justification by faith alone in Christ alone. It wasn't a eureka, jump out of the bath, run around with a towel saying, I've discovered it. It was a gradual understanding and dawning. He said, the words righteousness of God struck my conscience like lightning. When I heard them, I was exceedingly terrified. Whenever he thought about the righteousness of God, what he understood that to mean was the judgment of God against sin. And so he said, when I heard that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, Romans 1, he said, my first reaction was, good grief, how bad can it get? Not only in the Old Testament do you have the righteous God judging people for their sin, but you come to the gospel and exactly the same thing's happening. The righteousness of God, God's judgment on sin, is revealed in the gospel. There is no hope. But then he said, if God is righteous, he must punish. But if the righteousness of God contributes to the salvation of all who believe, then salvation won't be our merit, but God's mercy. That was a simple truth. Righteousness of God refers to the righteousness of God which clothes us in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That gives us his righteousness, so he deals with our sin, so that at the cross, heaven's justice and heaven's mercy meet. And he said, my spirit was there by cheers. A classic understatement of church history, I think. For it's by the righteousness of God that we're justified and saved through Christ. These words, which had before terrified me, now became more pleasing to me. So he got converted. Finally understood the gospel. As I said, yesterday I went back to Augustine, discovered that Augustine was teaching exactly the same thing. Question is what to do with it. Well, he didn't keep it to himself. He began ever so carefully, timidly, 
to begin to give expression to his understanding. And where it came up particularly was in the whole practice of the sale of indulgences. Um, indulgences are still given out today by the, by the Roman Catholic Church, but in Luther's day they were sold. Uh, the idea was that you paid money and you got a certificate. And the certificate said that, that you were given an indulgence which reduced the number of years that you needed to, live, to spend in purgatory. So you could go and look at some old relics, religious relics, or you could go on a pilgrimage, or you could do a certain number of prayers, and these things would give you an indulgence. But you could, if you wanted to, just go and pay money. And there used to be travelling indulgence salespeople who would travel around the villages preaching, and then people would put them in a box. That's a photograph of an indulgence box. That money would go in the box, and you would get a piece of paper saying that your, 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 your time in purgatory has been reduced by this many years. So you didn't have to suffer for that once you died. Luther's new understanding of salvation made him realise that this was a terrible idea. Uh, and so it's the against the sale of indulgences that he writes his 95 theses, his 95 propositions that sparked the Reformation. The reason that he was particularly provoked is because there was someone selling indulgences very close to where Luther lived, not in his district, but just out. So people from his church were ducking over the border to buy these certificates of indulgences. And they were coming back to Wittenberg saying, look, because what the way they were being marketed at that time was if you buy one of these indulgences, you go back to the estate that you were born in, you're back to a perfect innocence. So pre-sin, pre-fall, pre-everything, put you right back there. So it's a great promise to have. People realised that it was a, a disaster for any kind of Christian living. There was a joke that used to be told around at the time about a very wealthy man who, when the indulgence seller came through, said, I'd like to buy an indulgence, but I don't want it just for what I've done in the past. I want one for what I've done in the future. And the indulgence seller said, that's going to cost a fortune. I know what sort of men, but that's going to cost an absolute fortune. He said, it doesn't matter. I just want to have it all dealt with. So he pays over a huge amount of money gets his indulgence, the indulgence seller goes on. Months later, having sold a fortune in indulgences with lots more wagons, he's trundling through the nobleman's territories on his way back home. The nobleman comes down and robs him blind. When the indulgence seller complains, the, the nobleman pulls out his People understood that it was a that it, that it was a bad idea, but it was the practice of the church nonetheless. The reason they were being sold near, near Martin Luther was because one of, the, um, one of the, the leading churchmen in Germany had wanted to, um, to buy the top job in Germany. And uh, the way in which he bought it was he went to the Pope and uh, one historian tells a story that, uh, I'm not sure if it's true or not, but he tells the story that what happened was that the Pope said, well, you'll need to pay for this. Uh, there, are, there are 12 apostles, so I want 12,000 gold ducats. And uh, the churchman said, well, that's too much, but there are only seven deadly sins. I'll give you 7,000 gold ducats. And they both agreed there were 10 commandments, so they settled on 10,000. <laughs> now, in order to pay it, he had to borrow money from the bank. And in order to pay it back, he got permission from the Pope to uh, sell indulgences. He got half for the profits. The Pope got the other half to build some figures that we see today. So Luther launches the Reformation by writing a series of statements, 95 propositions, which are critical of the sale of indulgences. 
And that's the door, it's a, sort of a, a fake one now at, at Wittenberg, but that was the door space on which he, which he um, ended. He said, it's certain that when the penny, because the, the slogan used to be, every time you hear a penny dropping in the coin of the, in the bottom of the indulgence box, that tinkle is the sound of a soul flying free from purgatory. It's a great little, little sort of marketing jingle. Luther picks it up and says, it's certain that when the penny jingles in the money box, gain and avarice can be increased. Now, people get more greedy, no doubt about that. But the result of the intercession of the church is in the power of... It's up to God to decide who's forgiven, not whether or not money goes in the box. Every truly repentant Christian has a right to full remission of penalty and guilt. You don't need letters of pardon, you don't need letters of indulgence. So for that, in 1520, he was given 60 days to recant. Um, Luther waited for 60 days and then he went over to a park here uh, and uh, where that little memorial is, he had a big bonfire, gathered a big crowd and tossed the Pope's um, pronouncement in the fire and burnt it up very publicly. Uh, very Lutheran thing to do. He was excommunicated in 1521, appeals to the Emperor, and uh, in April 1521, Luther finds himself with a bad head cold. And you know it's like, blokes, when you get a head cold, it's just much worse than, than most others. So he's feeling utterly miserable, standing before the Holy Roman Emperor himself, being told, recant of your writings. So Luther is, is, is hugely intimidated. He expects to die. Uh, and so he asks for a night to sleep on. And so he asks for it, he takes a night, he comes back, and he stands and he says, if you can prove to me from Scripture that anything that I've written is wrong, I would gladly recant. But if you can't, what well, he said, to go against my conscience is neither safe nor right. Uh, so here I stand, I can do no other. And that was how he finished. He leaves the, 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 the diet in Vaughan's, and uh, on his way back, it becomes boy's own adventure. He gets kidnapped by bandits. Now, the bandits are actually soldiers of his local regional prince in disguise. And the prince realises that Luther's got next to no chance of surviving. So he whisks him away into hiding. And uh, he keeps him for 11 months in the Wartburg Castle, which is a UNESCO heritage-listed castle now. Uh, and uh, that he grew a beard. That's a picture of him with his beard over here. And that's the castle. It really is boy's own adventure. It's sort of like knights in shining armour. It's got everything. This, this part of the story. Um, it's got a drawbridge. Uh, it's got a portcullis. Uh, and and you you, get, you have to to get in. You have to go on a tour. So you go through the whole castle with a guide. So my wife and I are going through the whole castle. It was interesting enough. And all the time I'm thinking, I just want to see the room where Luther was because he lived in one room for 11 months where he wrestled with the devil and where he translated the Bible into German and he wrote off letters as the Reformation was raging around him. And we go right through the tour until the very end and the guide says, now that's the end of the tour. Still haven't seen anything, any sign of his room. And then and she said, now if anyone's interested, uh, down that hallway, at that point I was gone, I just ran straight down the hallway. I said to the point, I'll catch me up later. She said, there's Martin Luther's room. So you go down this long passageway and when you get to the very end of it, um, there's the room that Martin Luther lived in um, for 11 months. Um, the only thing that's original is the stove. That's what that green thing is. They're very common in um, older parts of Germany. And for some reason, if you can see it down the bottom, the vertebra of a wire. Um, everything else is added, but um, 
you may not be able to see that, that but there's a little white sort of stool down the bottom, and that's the whale's vertebra. Now, I don't know what that was doing there or why, but um, that's the room that Luther, um, they'd even to um, commemorate, they put a little poltergeist in the top, just, just by way of some reminding us what was happening there. So he wrestles with the devil, he translates the Bible, he writes letters, but the Reformation is chaos without him, and so eventually he returns and he brings order and uh, reform to the, the Reformation. So one final question to finish. What's so good about the Reformation? This is a um, memorial in Vols, and uh, over here is the first 1,500 years of church history, and over here it's a sculpture, is subsequent church history, and there's the Reformation. So the person who did the sculpture is very clear about what they thought of the Reformation. They thought it was a very bad idea. It's just this brutal, violent, cataclysmic disruption of the church. Um, and that's one perspective. Um, it's not mine, but it's one perspective. Uh, the reality is what the Reformation brought was purging and a reclaiming of the great doctrine of God's grace. And so Luther said, even if I lived and worked to eternity, my conscience would never be assured and certain how much it ought to do to satisfy God. For whatever work might be accomplished, there would always remain an anxious doubt whether it pleased God or whether he required something more, as the experience of all self-justifiers proves, and as I myself learned to my bitter cost through so many years. But now... Since God has taken my salvation out of my hands and into his, making it depend on his choice and not mine, and has promised to save me not by my own work or exertion, but by his grace and mercy, I am assured and certain both that he is faithful and will not lie to me, and also that he is too great and powerful for any demons or any adversities to be able to break him or to snatch me from him. I mean, that really sums up the weekend, doesn't it? The wondrous grace of God. And that's why it's the end. So thank you very much, everyone.